Um, I'm also very pleased uh, to have three of my grandchildren here tonight, Avery, Tyler, and Aiden. Um, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Um, I guess you can fill in the blanks. All right, sometimes people call me an old school preacher. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not, but uh, whether old school or new school, the bottom line is this. If you're going to be a preacher of the Word of God, you better preach a gospel that is eternal and universal. And if we don't preach one that's eternal and preach some other gospel that isn't a gospel, then we better turn away from it. And we're preaching a gospel that we can only share in the United States and not in La Grazia or anywhere else, then it's not the true gospel. Now tonight we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9. I'm going to read it in a little while. I'm going to talk tonight about sneak previews or coming attractions, whatever you want to call them. However, standing up here tonight, I was very mindful that the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 9.22 said it's incumbent upon us to be all things to all people, that we might not put any uh, barriers up so that they can hear the gospel better without any impediment. So mindful of that, I'm doing something tonight I've never done before. I'm wearing a t-shirt, see? I have never preached in a t-shirt. Now, I actually threw some uh, ripped jeans on the bed, and I was going to wear them, but I felt guilty because those are the cruddy jeans I wear uh, cutting the grass, so I drew the line there. However, I did Google what is really in today, and being old school, I had to find out on the internet. So I guess if you're really cool and really with it today and, and really have succeeded in the realm of uh, gospel ministry today, you wear shoes that cost at least $1,000. Am I right? That's what I've seen. Well, I'm into one-upmanship, so tonight I am wearing retro for Jordan Wahlbergers, $11,000. Now, see, I have really made it here tonight, and I've got proof right on my feet. Now, I probably shouldn't say this, and I know someone's going to get offended by that, but hey, you know, I've got free reign here tonight. If I ran into a preacher who had $1,000 sneakers on, I'd have a real moral dilemma. Would I feel worthy to untie their sneakers? Think on that for a moment. Let me take these off. It's kind of weird wearing two pairs of... Is anyone worthy to take off my cardboard sneakers? <laughs> there, we got that done. Um, another uh, thing I need to share, having to be with old school, and Susan and I have been here in City Life, wonderful church. We've been here for, well, next month we'll make four years. Yay! But I got to tell you something. For four years, my wife and I have listened to sermon. Did I lose the power? No, I got the power back. Uh, listened to sermon illustrations about the new Star Wars, not the one that came out when we watched them. Uh, Avengers, DC Comics versus Marvel Comics, and without exception, we turned to each other and go. I don't know what in the world they're talking about. But those of you who are 50 and older, raise your hands. Yes. Do you know what tonight is? Tonight is geriatric revenge. 
Now, this is only open to those of you who are 42 and younger. Let's see how you can relate to us now. <laughs> All right, and this is the 1950s science fiction version of Geriatric Revenge, okay? Now, I know you guys like Starbucks. That's your drink of choice. But I tonight, since it's Geriatric Revenge, you're going to get our drink of choice, prune juice. Vintage 2019 from Lay Dollar Store. Four questions here, and the advantage of this, this is good stewardship. Dave Ramsey would love it. This can either be the grand prize or the booby prize, depend on your choice. Number one, remember you have to be 42 or, uh, 42 or younger. Number one, in the 1954 science fiction movie, Them, what was Them? Oh my goodness, who said that? David, here, come and get your prune juice. Okay, the next one, 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still, a classic. Now, the female lead, I'm not gonna go into the plot, had to tell that outer space Martian three words. And if she didn't say those three words, he would destroy the whole planet. What were those three words? Oh my goodness. It's, she only knew that because she's my daughter. It's Klatu Barada Niktu, which in Martian talks means robot, please don't. Now, I was hesitant to share this because I know some of you are going to be really spiritual. Say, Lord, give me the interpretation. What does this mean? I want to share it. Uh, it's not tongues, okay? I just want to assure you that. And lastly, some of you know Amy and Jason Kearney in the new uh, Port News campus. How many of you do? Wonderful people. They helped start our church. Jason's a real estate agent, and Amy's an optometrist. Now, I do not have permission to use her image. Please don't tell her I did. And also, please don't tell her I'm going to share her kryptonite tonight, okay? There is a 1955 science fiction movie that absolutely scares her to death. And I can't literally say she saw it because she couldn't even sit through the whole thing. Now, who knows what Amy Kearney's scariest science fiction movie is? Aha. Uh -huh. Give up? Well, of course, it's the beast with a million eyes. Does this look better, or does this look better? Good, I get the prune juice. I really like coming attractions. I really like sneak previews. And I maintain that some of the things in the Word of God about heaven can be experienced now in a smaller degree than the ultimate fulfillment when we do get to heaven. I want to read the, our text now back to 2 Corinthians 2.9, which is really quoting Isaiah 64.6, where it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That was written, as I said, by Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if we were to put it in its context, it's talking about these things that were disclosed, but in Jesus' time were revealed by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, what kind of things were those? Well, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he indeed was the fulfillment of the law in the prophets, that he could and would perform miracles, and even one type of miracle that was never performed in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jewish tradition was if someone came forward and could do this, that might be a sure sign he's the Messiah. So let me, all right. What is the one miracle? What was that? I have to put my hand up like that, okay. See, I told you I'm old school. We would just shout it out. And, um... So what is the one miracle that was never done in the Old Testament, but Jesus did in the New Testament? Well, that's good. That, what was that? That was it, healing the uh, blind. Enjoy, Mike. Other things revealed about Jesus when he came, part of that what our minds could not conceive, what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, was that, uh, uh, that he was going to die for our sins and being raised from the dead, and that salvation would be offered to all men, uh, and not just the Jews, and that he would come and defeat death, and the list goes on and on and on. And we know what Jesus has done and can do. But that being said... There are still things that are out there that go beyond our human comprehension. Things we cannot understand. They were not all revealed with the coming of Jesus. In his ministry, he said things about heaven. And in the anointing of the other New Testament writers, they said some things about what is yet to come here on earth. And what is yet to come in all eternity that we still cannot totally conceive of and think of. And I would like to say that we get some sneak previews of those things that are going to be fulfilled when we get to heaven. But the reality waits till then. The imperfect now and the perfect then. First of all, I want to talk about seeing Jesus face to face. Hebrews 13.5, and it's a great promise that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Isn't that great? I mean, that's good all the time, but how uh, uh, more beautiful it is in time where we're hurting or time where we're overly challenged or overwhelmed. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to continue to be there for you. So I'm not denying that Jesus is not with us and with us at all times and uh, also with us in a special way or two or three gathered together as indeed we're doing here tonight. Now couple that with 1 Corinthians 13, 2, where it's the great love chapter, but Paul goes on to talk about, and I alluded to it a minute ago, that the imperfect will pass away and then we get the perfect. And when he's talking about the perfect, he says then. Then when he's talking about when we get to heaven, we will see face to face and we will know fully even as we are fully known. So the day's going to come when our eyes, we're going to see him face to face. But you know that old saying goes, and I, and I really hold to it sometimes. Sometimes we need God with skin on. Now, in our life. James chapter 1 and verse 17, an all-encompassing verse, says that 
uh, all or every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of light. Whatever good gift we have received has come from God. But then he gets very specific in Ephesians 4, 11. And earlier in chapter 4, God says that when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to us. And further on in verse 11, it says specifically what gifts he's referring to. Still under that umbrella truth that uh, their good and perfect gifts come down from the Father. But Ephesians 4, 11, and the Greek word for gifts is domata. And the word there talks about the soundness or the integrity of the gift. And I think that fits perfectly with what the word of God is talking about here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. They're saying that Jesus, when he ascended, gave the church, gave us these men and women in their calling to minister to us, to represent Christ, to do the work of God in our midst and at our side. So we have a pastor, Pastor Justin White. I still find it hard to call him Justin. That's old school, but I don't know. I feel I'm giving him some honor by calling him my pastor, even though he's young enough to be my son. So we have a great pastor, Justin White. We have a great first lady, Stephanie White. I was not familiar with that term up north, but down south, I guess that's what we call the pastor's wife, the first lady, right? Now, I don't know what to call Raj, but we have our own Raj too, okay? <laughs> so we got three great ones right there. But regardless of what anyone's specific call is of those five ministries, apostles, prophets, teachers, preachers, whatever, there's an overriding responsibility before you get into the specific call and the specific responsibilities that go with that call, and that is to be a representation of Jesus Christ, to be Jesus with the flesh on, to be a sneak preview of what it will be to see Jesus face to face. Now, they will be imperfect, and we don't expect perfection, but nevertheless, they are a sneak preview of what is to come. Now, let me say this, because I've been around the block a long time. Over 50 years ago, well, close to 50 years ago, got saved, went to Bible college. Believe me, I've heard thousands of sermons, been to a lot of churches, have been exposed to all kinds of ministry. And I'm going to tell you, God has given me the discernment. I know when there's a lousy minister and when there's an excellent minister. I know that. It's not discernment. I know when I've heard a lousy sermon and when I've heard a good sermon. Now, Pastor Justin, his messages are always biblically solid. And I would tell you if they weren't, Susan and I wouldn't be here. Regardless of the fact of, uh, that the rest of our family worships here, I'd say, sorry, kids. Love you dearly. We'll see you during the week. But life is too short to sit through unbiblical sermons. Amen? Good. I, I get concerned when it's just my family responding. <laughs> so his messages are always biblically solid, always and obviously well-prepared, well-thought-out, prayed over and delivered with an anointing. And although they might often be written at Starbucks, they never stink of coffee beans 
but always have that aroma of Christ that we're told to have if we're going to be believers, which is the aroma of life to those who are saved and the aroma of death to those who are perishing. Stephanie, whenever she feels led to say something up here, whether she's leading worship that night or not, and I've told her this, she is always spot on. Always. And I sit there sometimes in absolute amazement. How does she do that? Well, obviously, it's the Lord. She'll come up here, and she said uh, she has, and I'm not saying others don't do that here, but I, I just want to concentrate on our uh, pastor and his family. She's always spot on, always hits the bullseye. Clearly, it's of the Lord and for this moment and for this place. And I really appreciate that. And away from the pulpit and away from this altar area, I have found them to be compassionate, engaging, concerned about us, interested, Christ-like, and Jesus was skin on. Sneak preview would have is to see Jesus face to face. Now there are people who may be not credentialed, may not have an official title. But God has nevertheless given them to us, be they men or women, who are recognized by God and recognized by us who sat under their ministry. We have people in our church like that, and I've encountered many, and so have you, who do have a ministry and maybe without a title that man recognizes. But someday the imperfect passes away and the perfect comes into view. We have only a partial glimpse or understanding what it'll be like to see Jesus face to face. So let me call that a sneak preview or a coming attraction. And boy, wait till opening night. Secondly, another thing that we get to taste or experience down here before we experience the fullness and the reality in heaven is that God wipes away our tears. Now the Lord is really emphatic on this. In Revelation chapter 7, in verse 17... Twice he said that there is, he's going to wipe away our tears. Twice. It's like, hey, did you hear me? I'm going to say it again. And then he also says in chapter 21 and verse 4 that he'll wipe, uh, there'll be no more crying in heaven. So here's three times he's making it so clear that when we get to heaven, no more weeping, no more crying. And it's probably all tied up with the fact that the Bible also said that in heaven there'll be no more death and no more sickness. And that we'll have new bodies too. But here on earth, we do have tears. I dare say there's some people here tonight that you've cried or wept this week. Maybe by yourself in your car when no one was home. You didn't tell anybody and you don't want anyone else to know. And maybe there are even people here who have cried today. Psalm 34, 18 says that God draws near to the brokenhearted. Why? I always have to laugh a little when I hear the helicopter traffic person saying there's a breakdown on the side of the road. Uh, I'm thinking this man pulling his hair out and said, I'm mad as heck and I can't take it anymore. But obviously they're referring to vehicles, okay? Not emotional breakdowns, all right? But why does God draw near? Is he just curious? Is he rubbernecking? He draws near to comfort. He draws near to hold. 
He draws near to allow us to cry. And most surprisingly, I would dare say to you, he draws near to encourage us to cry. Tears are God-given. Now, in my work as a bereavement coordinator and dealing with families who've just lost loved ones, I've heard more than once people saying, I don't want to cry because I'm afraid if I start crying, I won't be able to stop. Now, I don't think I've ever directly told someone this, but let me say it here tonight. I would be more concerned if I don't start crying than if I don't stop crying. Tears are of God, at least for our time here on planet Earth. And the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1.3, where he's called that, will come and bring us joy in the morning when we're crying. But let's be realistic here. The fact of the matter is, is that, okay, our tears might be wiped away, and in the morning we feel so much better, but the same situation might be ongoing, and those tears are going to return someday. And God doesn't say to us, well, I thought I wiped those tears away, you know, uh, Uh, Why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about. God doesn't say that to us. Because he knows some of the situations in our life might be ongoing. How about a mom or dad whose uh, child is totally backslidden? They're out there in drugs and all kinds of things. You think they're going to weep one night over them? Some of us are in the kingdom of God tonight because people not only prayed for us, but wept for us and cried for us and not one night. And then the next morning said, okay, there." You know, that ought to do it for the rest of their life. So there are some situations. And it's very much like Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. Maybe we don't often think about that. He was raised from the dead only to die again. He wasn't assumed up to heaven. And so sometimes God wipes away our tears only for us sooner or later to cry again. And that's what it's like down here. And then sometimes there's new trouble, new heartache. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. And so some of us are overwhelmed and crying, not because of one big problem, but because you have this on top of this. And I'm still dealing with yesterday's trouble, and now I've got today's trouble on top of that. And we're talking more than getting stuck on the James River Bridge. I'm talking things that are just gut-wrenching and just tearing us apart, going to the core of our being. What is tearing you apart tonight? What's crushing your heart? What's crushing your spirit? What's putting you in despair? My advice to you is cry. Not necessarily now, but cry. If you want sharks, put blood in the water. You want to draw up more flies, get some honey. You want Jesus extra close, start crying, and he will draw near. All right, I have another question for you here tonight. And uh, there's no prizes with this one. I want you to tell me what these words have in common. All right, you ready? Burp, donkey, pinches, Olive Garden, Adolf Hitler, Lucifer, Jeep, Cherry Tart, and One Too Many. All right, this is one of those association uh, genius tests here. What do all these words have in common? And they do have something in common. Yes. They're all terrible. They're all terrible? Well, I don't mind Olive Garden. Okay. That, that, uh, okay. It's okay. Anyone else? These are, okay, you're giving up, right? Okay, I'm not going to do the Jeopardy music. Okay, so <clears throat> these are actual 
factual names that parents have given their children. Now, some of these go back a while, but some of these are very recent. I mean, can you imagine this is my son, Burp? Now, don't ever elect me to office, and I've thought about this for years, and I might yet write a short story on this, because I would pass a law that when you became 21, if you were given a real bizarre name that put a bullseye on you for all the bullies in school, and that you've maybe even had to seek counseling because of all the, all the uh, junk that came your way, that I would make this rule that when you're 21, you get to legally change your parents' name, and you legally have to call them that. Everyone on planet Earth... So, hey, this is my dad, old doodle-doo, and uh, this is my mama, Mrs. Krabby Pants. So for the rest of the life, they have to call that. I think people would think twice about maybe calling their child Adolf Hitler. What do you think? <laughs> that brings us to our third taste of heaven we get down here, and that's having a new name. We're going to get a new name in heaven. Now, I have begged for years that, that, that God, I know Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his side, but I prayed more than three times, God, please, please, don't name me Eugene. Because I have this horrible nightmare that here for eternity and forever and ever, I'm walking down the streets of gold, and you all see me and the millions and millions of others say, hygiene, and I go, what, what, there's nothing wrong with my hygiene, Okay. Now, maybe we've had nicknames. How many of you have had nicknames? I'm not asking you to share them. How many of you had nicknames? When I was young, kids were brutal. We don't make fun of kids with glasses anymore, do we? I don't think we do. Oh, it was Coke bottle bottoms, four eyes, and then when you get older, it's pizza face, and then if you're really skinny, which I was never called this, it's bean pole, and the list goes on. Most of the nicknames aren't too nice, but some are okay. But you know what's interesting? That most of the things maybe we were called have to do with the outside of us, what we look like. How tall, how short, how fat, how skinny. But Jesus sees something anyone else cannot see. Like the man let down from the roof who was paralyzed. I love that story. Because everybody in that crowded room didn't even have to ask, oh, I know why this guy desperately wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to walk. And I bet his friends who lowered him down thought the same thing. Because sometimes we have secrets in our own heart that's no one else's business. And no one else has earned the privilege to know what's in here. But Jesus looked at him. And he saw that his need wasn't for healing, at least not his primary need, but his need was for forgiveness. That was a heavier burden than not being able to walk. Now, the point I'm, I'm making here is, okay, they looked on the outside. Maybe somebody called them crippled or beggar because that's what, how the, you would have had to, to, to get by back in those days. But Jesus looked on that man's heart, and he said, you need to be forgiven, and then could call him forgiven. Because God looks here in our heart. 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I'm fully convinced that whatever our new names are up in heaven, it will have nothing to do with our outward appearance or outward look, but will have everything to do with our inward heart and our inward spirit. 
Now, in Revelation 2.17 is, uh, is one of the letters to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And they all follow the same format. It's good psychology. If you have something bad to say to somebody, first you say the nice stuff. Then you say, but I have this against you. And then they all end with promises. And they're conditional. If you do this, uh, then I will give you this. But in uh, this uh, word from Revelation 2.17 talks about God giving us a white stone with a new name on it. Now, it's not the name of the white stone. It's our name, that God's going to give us a new name. And it says if we're victorious, we'll get that new name. Now, maybe the positive things about Pergamos was not applicable to the other churches. Maybe the negative stuff were not applicable. But the promises definitely were applicable to all the churches and are applicable to us as well too. God's promising us a new name up in heaven. But you know, some of you already have a new name. I called Mike Masters Rick for almost a year. I used to be so good with names, that's just not the truth anymore. So I th I'd say, hi, Rick, how are you doing? So almost a year later, I think he got to the breaking point, and he said, um, Dean, my name is Mike. I said, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but the joke might be on him. We see him up there say, hi, Rick. <laughs> but some of you have a new, uh, a new name before the world because some of you, well, maybe many of us, some of you were really immersed in the world, drinking and drugs and promiscuous sex and all kinds of things, or lawlessness. And maybe some of those people have given you a new name, a killjoy or party pooper, weirdo, holy roller. Oh, you're one of those Christians. 1 Peter 4.4 talks about those we used to hang with, and now they think it's strange that we don't jump right back in the same dissipation that we used to before. I can assure you they have names for us, and maybe they won't say them to our face, but those are names that we can uh, wear it with pride because they reflect our new life in Christ. They reflect our new stance of righteousness and sanctification in Him. So we get a little sneak preview of heaven because we get a new name that reflects Christ already. And some of us have names in church. Some of you... Encourager. Some of you worship inspirer. And I'm not talking about the worship leaders and I'm not taking anything away from them. But there's some of you who sit in the pews are so unselfconscious about your worship to Jesus that either we're going to stare at you or we're going to jump right in. So some of you are worship inspirers here. Some of you are faithful servants. Some of you are prayer warriors. And we have a need we know who to go to because you are prayer warrior. And we know if we need encouragement, we go to you because we know you are encourager. One of my favorite New Testament characters is Epaphroditus. Paul wrote about him in Philippians chapter 2.30. He talked about his work in the church in Philippi. He said that he almost risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Now, I don't mean to be cynical here. Paul is saying the help you could not give, so he did double duty or triple duty. I'm wondering if there were some people who could have given, but they did not. And regardless, Epaphroditus said, hey, there's work to be done here. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do that. Now, that's a double-edged sword. Every church needs Epaphroditus's. 
Epaphrodites, whatever it is. But at the same time, we want people to have a work-life balance or a ministry-work balance. We don't want people to sacrifice marriages or family life or some of the joy that God intends us to have here. But there are people in our church who are very much like Epaphroditus, who are compensating for things that other people cannot do or will not do. We could call them compensator. We could call them gap filler. We could call them church lifeblood because as having pastored more, uh, uh, a number of churches, I don't know where the church would be if there weren't some Epaphroditus's there. Whether it's SLT, and I'll put in a plug, if you want to help set up and tear down for service, raise your hand, Anthony. Raise your hand. Okay. I was going to give you those sneakers, but not now. Um, <laughs> If you want to help out there, we need help in the nursery, we need help with the primary uh, group, and we have help with the uh, little older kids. Friends, don't be one who necessitates an Epaphroditus to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take up the slack, I'll do the rest, uh, you know. He um, said he almost died. Okay, so I put a plug in for that. Okay, put in a plug for Amy as an optometrist, Jason as a real estate agent, and people here to work in the church. Oh, and did I tell you I do Santa Claus? $35 a home visit. Okay, lastly tonight, and this one's my favorite, and I, and I really believe, I hope the things have resonated with you already, but I really think maybe this last one, and I need to hear it as well as maybe some of you, and that's hearing well done. It's from the parable in Matthew 25, 23 of the master who gave his servants some talents or some loose translation, we'll say bags of gold, because in our Western mind we think talents, oh, okay, you can tap dance and you can do this. Talents is type of money. So he gave the money to these people and then he left. And then he came back and wanted an accounting for what they did with those talents or those bags of gold. And one of them earned so much money uh, back that the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. I think sometimes we have the misconception that we're only going to hear that, and maybe not all of us, until we cross the finish line, die, and see Jesus face to face. I don't know where we got that from. In China, there's a test spelled G-A-C-K-A-O. I looked up the pronunciation. Hopefully, I have it right. G-A-H-A. These are entrance examinations. Children will start preparing for them before primary school. And they will get tutors, and it's intense preparation for these tests. And then they take it at the end of high school. And it will determine, you will go to college, you will go to blue-collar uh, preparation. And I think the funny thing about it is, you know, where is this human mentality that if you get to wear a white shirt and a tie, you'll only make one-quarter or one-fifth of their, the plumber. I don't know, I would like to think, hey, do bad on the test. Be a plumber and make five times the money. But any, regardless, the society wants their kids to do really well and be able to go to college and be able to wear that white shirt and tie and be an accountant or an engineer or whatever. 
So here's this intense preparation. They take the test, and then the results are posted. So everybody can say, oh, these made it, these did not. So during the intense preparation, and then when you see the whole world gets to see, well, you're not, you didn't make it, you did. There are suicides. It's so intense. Now, I got to go to a lot of my, I don't know, did I go to all of them? My grandkids' soccer games. I would think it would be absolutely bizarre if we didn't shout anything, didn't say anything positive until the game was all over, and then maybe say something positive if they won. I saw my family shouting to our, our kids. Most of the time it was positive. Sometimes it is, what are you doing back there? But, <laughs> sorry, Tyler. Um, <laughs> but they were encouraging. They were shouting. They didn't care who heard. In the book, Search for Significance, highly recommended by Robert S. McGee, he talks about the results of Adam and Eve giving into Satan's temptation and how it affects us even today. He says, man lost his secure status with God and began to struggle with feelings of arrogance, inadequacy, and despair, valuing the opinions of others, let me insert this, or our own, more than the truth of God. This has robbed man of his true self-worth and has put him in a continual but fruitless search for significance through his success and the approval of others. Now, now go back to that Chinese test for these students. Can you imagine saying, oh, am I going to get the approval? You know, am I going to make the grade? Are they going to be pleased with me? My teachers, my instructors, my tutors, my parents, my friends. And you don't get to know until way down the road. That's part of the lie Satan fed, uh, fed us. And that's part of our fallenness. That we've stopped listening to God. Like, like Adam walked with him in the garden in the cool of the evening. And we're not told exactly what God said. But I, I guarantee it's positive things. Encouraging things. Loving things. And I really believe in our walk here in earth, we need to put aside that lie that God doesn't love us. And even when we are saying that to ourselves and not hearing others, I love 1 John 3, 20, where it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is bigger than our hearts. Isn't that great? God says, wait a minute, I got veto power. Uh, I heard what you said, but this is what I'm saying. And you better give heed to what I say and not you. And then we get it all jumbled up and we start wondering, does God love me? Am I doing a good job? Am I going to make it to heaven? And the list goes on and on. So we're filled with this insecurity. We're filled with this drive to continually succeed or to make it and wonder what God thinks. And we can't hear what he says. And we're thinking, I even encounter Christians. But the word of God says, these things have I written that you may know you have eternal life. And if any of you were sitting here and said, well, I hope I make it, and I've encountered Christians who will say that, that is not false humility. That is an unbiblical stance for any child of God to say, if you've sincerely accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and are keeping step with the Holy Spirit, don't say, well, I hope I made it. Jesus made a way, and I am going to heaven. And if you're not sure about that, Anthony and Amanda will be down here praying, and I will too, and we can pray you through that. So God doesn't practice 
Giaha. So when we die, what's he going to say? Our works will be tested, but I guarantee you, God looks at our works all along the way. And he does say, well done. And he does say, you can do it. And he does say, okay, you fell. Come on, brush yourself off. Hebrews 12.1 talks about a great cloud of witnesses, those heroes of faith who have this image of like a stadium. They're the great cloud of witnesses as though they're watching us in the race of life. As though they're cheering us on as we go forward. But I hope it doesn't stretch our imagination too much to see Jesus in that crowd as well. Say, come on, come on. You can do it. I love this story, and if you haven't seen it, you can go on YouTube. It's about Derek uh, Redmond 24 years ago in the Rio Olympics. I don't know exactly what he did, but he injured his leg, pulled a hamstring or something. And he was severely limping and was barely going forward. And all of a sudden, his father runs out of the stadium. At first, his son was resisting him, thinking, oh, Dad, i got to do this. But his father wouldn't, wouldn't listen to it. So his father went over to him, hugged his son, and the two of them walked over the finish line together. Now, let me ask you this. Who do you think got the loudest cheering? The ones who won the race or Derek Redmond and his dad? I want to end with a story here tonight. It's a first-person story, but I want to assure you it's not my story, but, but listen up. When I was growing up, my dad allowed me to play baseball, but he never came to any of my ball games. He was conservative to the max. He would always wear his dark blue suit and a tie. I even think he might have slept in a tie. In the spring of my senior year, our team had played well, and we headed to the championship game. I went to my father and literally begged him to come to the game, but he wouldn't commit himself. Now remember, he hadn't gone to any games yet. On that May afternoon, I walked out onto the ball field and looked up into the stands. And in the sea of brightly colored spectators, baseball fans, there was my dad right in the middle of them in his blue suit, and my father was thrilled to be there. We played our hearts out, but by the time we got to the bottom of the ninth inning, we were still down by two. The score was four to one. There were two outs. The bases were loaded, and it was my turn. I walked to the plate, knocked the dirt out of my cleats with my bat, assumed my batting stance, and the pitcher put one right down the middle. I swung. Strike one. I backed out of the box, banged my cleats again, and got ready another fastball. Strike two. And then three balls. It was a full count. The crowd was going wild as I stepped to the plate for my final attempt. I said, God, if you're there, this is the time. The ball was pitched. I swung and connected. 
Driving the ball deep down center field, I took off for first, and as I rounded first, the first man scored. As I raced into second, the second man scored. The ball had come off the center field fence, and the center fielder was about to grab it for the throw to the plate. And coming around second, I was running as hard as I could, and the crowd was on their feet, screaming at the top of the lungs, when all of a sudden, above everyone else, above all the other voices, I heard my dad, and he was shouting, It's okay, son, you're going to make it. Come on home. I streaked around third, slid under the tag, and won the game. And I didn't care. All I could think about the rest of my life was my dad, in my mind's eye, standing to his feet, shouting me home. Is it too much to have in your mind's eye, God? Standing, cheering you on, shouting you home, now, today, tomorrow. I believe we can have that taste of heaven. When we see him face to face, as the word of God promises us. And when he wipes away our tears, and when we're given that new name, yes, we will hear again, well done, but let's taste of these things now. And some of you need to hear that because you're beaten up and you're discouraged and your walk with God is suffering. You've lost your joy. You've lost your uh, energy. Um, that's because you're not hearing him. So I'm going to have you stand. Worship leader will, will come here. We'll just have one quick song. As I already said, Amanda and Anthony will be glad to pray for you. Susan and I will be glad to pray for you. But I want to encourage you, don't go home. If there's something that God touched your heart about tonight, let's seal it with prayer before you go back out in the world because there's going to be more tears. And you might get new labels. And let him shout you all the way home.